What's good, everybody? We're back at uh, another read aloud. This is chapter two of We Exist by Michael Stevens, which is me, also known as X. And uh, let's just get to this. So this is chapter two. I don't believe that. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Morpheus, The Matrix, written by the Wachowski siblings. Have you ever had a conversation with someone where the two of you are discussing a multitude of subjects, be them politics or religion, etc., and have said conversation die off abruptly? And while most people accept this as normal behavior, usually ending the conversation with, let's agree to disagree, you're left scratching your head, wondering what went wrong. For the most part, the person ending the conversation usually does so because the current subject matter infringes upon their beliefs. To me, this is similar to how a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Except instead of chains, it's conversations, and instead of links, it's beliefs. Furthermore, it also seems like most people would rather cling to their beliefs, usually out of fear, then embrace something new, mainly because it's easier to hold tight to what keeps them safe, i.e. their current beliefs, rather than venture into the unknown, or all possibilities. Unfortunately, the above is a conditioned or controlled behavior, a habit we've developed, perhaps passed down through generations, so that we can feel secure within our beliefs. This also happens when the imagination is extracted from the mind and replaced with a limited number of core beliefs. Thus, instead of having a belief in all possibilities, most people focus on their cores, therefore placing all other beliefs below them, especially the ones they don't yet understand or accept. And although it's good to practice tolerance, it's never good to allow any belief to limit an opportunity for personal growth, which, at least to me, is one of many epidemics ravaging our planet. Sadly, this epidemic, clinging to one's belief, is not only disastrous to the mind, as it blocks people from exploring beyond the third dimension, <clears throat> but also the body as it allows fear to wreak havoc on our internal world. Therefore, instead of a generic chapter on what beliefs are, my goal is to show you how they hold us back, from advancing in science to living in a free society, and much more. However, before I begin, I'd like to state that hardly anything in this chapter is belief. In fact, I rarely believe anything or in anything anymore and that's not necessarily a bad thing if anything 
I have been set free. I, I'm sorry. <clears throat> if anything, I have been set free. No longer constrained to an old paradigm ruled by a few core beliefs. Instead, I am able to view existence from numerous perspectives. Because of this, I am then able to report my findings back to the people on this planet, as well as those monitor monitoring us from up above. In fact, <clears throat> this book is a byproduct of a recent nine-month exploration into the beyond, where I learned to shed my beliefs and accept all possibilities. It is also why I no longer have fear about writing this chapter, deconstructing a subject that most people hold so dear to their hearts, a subject that unfortunately starts wars and ends relationships, all the while stunting our personal and evolutionary growth. However, much like a child who has outgrown their need for a baby blanket, human beings have also outgrown their need for beliefs. Unfortunately, they just don't know it yet. Our invisible companion. First and foremost, our belief system was created by the ego to act as an invisible companion, one meant to keep us safe during times of exploration, be them physical or mental. And while it has helped us evolve into the beings we are today, it has also kept us from evolving any further. This, of course, is by design, mainly because tension, usually in the form of conflict, is needed to help us grow. And while our beliefs, or our belief system, has helped us get to where we are today, in order for us to evolve any further, we need to say goodbye to our old beliefs, mainly because they no longer, or they are no longer needed. This, of course, is difficult to do, as we love to cling to our beliefs. Thankfully, though, when we are ready to move forward, i.e. let go of our beliefs, our, in our invisible companion acts like a slingshot, gives us one final hug, and skyrockets us towards the next stage of evolution, the state of knowing. Of course, once launched... How do we know if or even when we've reached this next stage of evolution? For the most part, the short answer is that we just know. Similar to knowing that you are in love or say how you know that you can tie your shoes. However, the long answer is slightly more complicated and will definitely put your beliefs to the test. For starters, the whole idea that we will never know everything in existence is nothing more than a myth. It is a belief installed into the ego before we are born only to be unlocked when we wake up to what I call the first level of consciousness. For the most part, its purpose is to keep us in the dark, stopping us from remembering who we are and why we are here. Furthermore, it convinces us to play it safe and seek security rather than seek understanding and knowledge, or freedom. Therefore, when we believe that knowing everything in existence is impossible, we are slowly manifesting that separation into reality. Unfortunately, as more people buy into this belief, 
the harder it is for anyone to break out of it. Additionally, it's just as likely for us to know everything in existence as it is for us to know nothing. In the end, it all comes down to what we choose to believe, which essentially comes down to how we think this is because of or this is because of beliefs which for the most part are nothing more than habits formed out of thought thus the more you cycle through the same thought the more it becomes your reality and the more it becomes your reality the more you accept it as truth when in fact it is just a belief a habitual thought that is now harder for you to break away from like an addiction sadly however it doesn't end there you see the moment we allow our thoughts to become habits or beliefs just like addictions we allow them to hold us prisoner to the decision we make furthermore we cling to our beliefs or when we cling to our beliefs we give away whatever freedom we have to the ego who then offers us security in exchange for our perceived free will. Thus, when we act on our beliefs, especially our core beliefs, we act out of habit, basically as slaves to the ego. The Eye of the Beholder Of course, for some, the first few pages of this chapter may have already triggered a few beliefs, be them negative or positive. And while these beliefs may be the same from person to person, i.e., we can't know everything, or the ego doesn't control us, the reason behind them are uniquely different. This is because of our perceptions, which derive from our genetic makeup and our environment, nature and nurture. The role in both how and why we align with a belief in the first place hold on make up our environment oh they play a role in both how and why we align with our belief in the first place it's also why everyone on planet earth is able to have their own unique personal experience simply because we each and every one of us decode information gathered by the five senses differently due to our perceptions unfortunately it's also the reason why messages, although written in black and white, can be interpreted a million different ways. For the most part, the moment a thought enters our brain, it goes through numerous cycles of telephone, Chinese whispers, bouncing through billions of past thoughts, experiences, and beliefs a second until it comes up with a concise answer. Unfortunately, by the time the brain finishes processing the information after being washed, scrubbed, and rinsed thoroughly by our thoughts, including our beliefs, the decoded message is usually a fragment of its former self. And because we don't have the technology, either spiritually or mechanically, to tap into each other's brains, our decoding process, it is nearly impossible to maintain a flawless interpretation of any message coming in. Therefore, we are stuck deciphering each other's points of view through the lens of our own understanding, which, as seen around the world, can lead to some truly heinous disasters. 
As for those able to give the above paragraph the benefit of the doubt, I thank you. Far too often, people get caught up in their beliefs, completely missing out on the multitude of perspectives contained within each message, which is an amazing skill to have when it comes to understanding people, the universe, and all of existence. However, in order to see these other perspectives, we first need to shed ourselves of our beliefs. Most importantly, our core beliefs, which basically cement us to the ground. As for those wondering why it's important for us, or important to be free of our beliefs, I'm certain the rest of this chapter will cover it. And while I'd love to, I'd love for everyone to accept the following information as gospel and immediately get to work shedding themselves of their beliefs, at least the majority of them, I'm well aware that most people don't work that way. For the most part, shedding ourselves of our beliefs is not an overnight process. For example, it took me roughly eight months to unload my treasure chest of beliefs, and I'm still clinging to one, the belief of all possibilities. And you know what? I'll be honest with you, as I've gone through this process, I'll say this. Beliefs go deeper than we ever imagine. I'm still dealing with some that I am breaking through at this very moment. And some that I will break through down the road. So be patient with yourself. Give yourself time. And be good to yourself while you go through this. Because this process can be really hard on you. So... Just when, as you break through your beliefs, give yourself praise and be proud of yourself as you move through it because it's one of the hardest things that you'll probably do in life, but it's also one of the most beneficial. So, um, I hope you enjoy at least some of the, the journey. The gift of Collective consciousness. Of course, I'm not saying it will take you six months to do the same. For the most part, if you read this chapter and subsequent chapters with an open mind, it is my guess that you'll be able to shed the majority of your beliefs well before the six-month marker. And although the following concept may be hard for some or for most people to accept, the reason it is possible is because of something called collective consciousness, an idea that promotes a unifying energy across societies. And although you may not believe that all of us are connected consciously, a study published in the August 1991 issue of Noetic Sciences Bulletin by researcher Monica England of the UK shows that it is actually possible. In her study, she gathered information from multiple test groups who were asked to complete crossword puzzles before and after they were published. England also had the groups complete a crossword puzzle from the issue of the Evening Standard that had been published 10 days before. This was her controls. Ultimately, England found that her test subjects increased their relative scores by 5% after the crossword puzzle was published in London. Sadly, though, due to our society's rigid belief system, 
This study was not academically re recognized and thus was labeled as pseudoscience. Be that as it may, if we include other experiments such as the hidden face experiment and the hundredth monkey effect, along with Rupert Sheldrake's concept of morphic resonance and the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, we begin to see that the concept of collective consciousness is actually possible. Texting from the womb. To further this conversation, think about how quickly each new generation adapts to technology. In general, doesn't it seem like kids today are coming out of the womb with the required skills to operate most smart devices, not to mention laptops and desktop computers. And although advances in technology have made it easier to understand and operate these devices, what do you think would happen if we were to transport a smart device back to the 1980s and ask someone from that time to operate it? For the most part, they'd likely either fumble around with it or quit using the device altogether. And that's only 30 to 40 years ago. Imagine the difficulties someone in... Uh, sorry. Imagine the difficulties someone in the 1950s would have with the same technology of today. <clears throat> sure, they may find it flashy or exciting, but they'd also find it quite overwhelming. However, most children of today are the ones showing their parents the ins and outs of the current technology on the market. But how? Perhaps to understand this phenomenon better, we first need to look at technology from a different light, or better put, a different perspective. For the most part, there seems to be a popular, popular belief across our societies that unless an item is powered by some sort of energy, it cannot be considered technology. However, when we look at technology from a different perspective, we actually see that man and machine, i.e. technology, have always had some sort of symbiotic relationship or other throughout the generations dating all the way back to the wheel. Unfortunately, because we choose to cling to our beliefs as a civilization, instead of being open to all perspectives, we fail to see beyond the rigid nature that most definitions provide for us. Because of this, most people fail to see these definitions can also be bent or broken, as Morpheus said to Neo in The Matrix, therefore opening the door to new and different perspectives. Moreover, from the wheel to tables and chairs to our TVs, computers, and smart devices, we've been surrounded by technology since the moment we learnt to invent them, i.e. create them. Therefore, Perhaps in hand with morphic resonance, the idea that memory is inherent in nature, it is possible that all of our experiences with technology have been passed down through DNA from parent to child, generation after generation, culminating to the children we have today, who, as I said, pop out of the womb, perfectly able to operate any smart device. Therefore, 
Perhaps collective consciousness isn't just an invisible force floating around in the atmosphere, waiting for us to tap into it, but also residing within our DNA, waiting for it to be passed down to the next generation. If you think about it, is it not possible that morphic resonance is our way of evolving beyond the high-functioning ape we claim it to be? Oh, sorry, we claim to be. Um, think about it. Not only is today's generation faster with technology, but we are also living longer, growing taller, and for the most part, kids, before the indoctrination of modern education, are consistently more creative than previous generations. Perhaps all because we are able to pass down our experiences through our DNA. The ego takes the wheel. And while the passing down of genes to future generations is vitally important to the human experience, we also need to be responsible for our actions. Unfortunately, because we, as a whole, aren't always res as responsible as we could be, it is inevitable that we will someday reach a state of overpopulation impossible to sustain. Therefore, not only will we run out of space to house everyone, but we will also run out of the necessary resources to survive off of. Not to mention the resources that the planet requires to keep running, i.e. perform all of its cycles and stages. And while it may seem hard for some, if not most, people to believe, it is very likely that we that what we consider to be oil is actually the planet's source of blood. Therefore, just as mosquitoes drill for human blood, we are also performing a similar feat. Unfortunately, our pillaging doesn't end there. From gold to silver to copper, magnesium, and every other resource mined on this planet for our own consumption, it is possible that our actions are eradicating the planet of its natural or of its essential nutrients. And because we have yet to find a way to live symbiotically with our host, we, human beings, act as a parasite, consuming every last drop until the planet is left barren and dry, and possibly eradicated. And although everyone should hold themselves accountable for the resources they consume, there is more to play than the simple act of overconsumption. For the most part, in one fashion or another, we are all kept ignorant to the damaging effects our actions have on this planet. This, of course, is all part of the ego's programming that controls us, which will be explained in Volume 2, Create. By the way, Volume 2 Create is now changed, and I will explain that in another podcast, but it's basically the uh, an idea that I have that I want to incorporate all of the creation that I do from this movement forward, and it'll build upon itself. Again, I will explain that in another episode on something else. And while we... And while the following may be hard for some people to accept, 
At some point in our lives, whether we choose to or not, we fall victim to the ego. For the most part, this is done by a program called the system, which not only keeps us ignorant to the truth, but also runs our media, government, healthcare, and so much more. In addition, it also keeps us distracted, convincing us to lead consumeristic lives rather than ones of compassion for the planet and its inhabitants, including plants and animals. Thus, the more distracted we become, the less focus we give to the continual eradication of our fully functioning and alive planet. Of course, this is simply one of many areas where the collective programming within the ego has gained too much control over humanity and thus has found a way to keep the majority of people under its spell, advanced hypnosis. This is also why most people who have just woken up to the bigger picture struggle to remain friends with those considered still asleep, mainly because both sides have no clue how strong of grasp the system, a program within the ego's emotional guidance operating system, has on our minds or lives. However, as beings become more aware of their actual surroundings, the more they wake up, the sooner they realize how much control the system has, not only over their lives, but over the lives of others. Hopefully, as more and more people awaken to their surroundings, thereby also recognizing the negative impact that consumerism has on both the human psyche and the planet in general, they'll also become more conscientious towards our civilization's tireless pillaging of the planet's resources, and hopefully do something about it. Additionally, looking at it from another perspective, if reincarnation is, in fact, true, and we consistently come back to this planet lifetime after lifetime, wouldn't it be in our best interest to create the best living conditions for our future selves? Concerning the alternative, do nothing and we simply keep returning to this planet as slaves to the system, hell-bent on security, clinging ever so tightly to our beliefs. Unfortunately, the latter is likely the possibility most people will settle on mainly because change is often regarded as being too difficult or scary, both of which reside within the system's control. Yet again, this is a prime example of how beliefs can limit our ability to advance, spiritually, technologically, etc. And since we believe that change is difficult, we then act out of fear therefore allowing our beliefs to dictate how we feel about the situation. However, if we allow ourselves to step outside of our limiting beliefs, we actually find that the function of change is neutral and that it is, in fact, our beliefs that are making our ability to change sizably more difficult. One second. We are what we believe. Of course, the term difficult is relative to each and each individual and their surroundings. Uh, 
Simply put, what is difficult for some may be a walk in the park for others. Unfortunately, instead of looking at it from an objective point of view, where the goal is to figure out what holds people back from accomplishing the same tasks with the same ease, we look at the above statement subjectively, simply accepting it as part of life, which doesn't help anyone. Therefore, instead of finding a solution to the above issue, it allows people to remain victim to the cause, continuously reinforcing the idea that their beliefs are right and that they can, they can never improve. And although our genetics do affect our possibilities for success, they pale in comparison to the control that our environment has over us, including our beliefs. Therefore, in the end, at least for the most part, excuse me, therefore, in the end, at least for most people, as long as they don't have a limiting disability, what they accomplish in life will usually come down to what they believe. Now, these beliefs may not be the fly-by-night, surface-level kind of kind that are easily discarded, like the smacking of a mosquito. For the most part, the beliefs that hold us back are usually deeply rooted, sometimes all the way down to the core. Unfortunately, the deeper the roots go, the more entrenched they become in our reality. Add to that the belief that change is difficult and the fight to regain our freedom from the clutches of the ego seems almost unwinnable. However, because we live in a realm of duality, this is only one half of the difficult concept. The other side, for the most part, deals with collective consciousness and how a task becomes easier as more and more people perform it, thereby gaining mastery of said task. Thus, the more people who find freedom upon discarding their beliefs, the easier it will be for the next generation of people to do the same. This cycle will repeat, sorry, this cycle will then hopefully repeat, allowing an easier route for other people to shed themselves of their beliefs. This continues until the day beliefs are no longer necessary basically because we've replaced them with the ability to see all perspectives and therefore understanding that all is possible, not just what we believe. Creatures of Habit I also understand that the idea of all being possible is a difficult concept to grasp or accept, at least for some. And although this is partly due to the fact that the ego, through its beliefs program, our belief system has convinced us that we are extremely limiting beings, limited beings, not only in how we think, but also in what we accomplish. There is another, oh wait, hold on, convinced, not only in how we think, but also in what we can accomplish, there's another side to this concept. For the most part, I'm certain we've all heard or perhaps said some derivative of the following phrase. We're all just creatures of habit. Now, according to the Cambridge English Dictionary, this turn of phrase means someone who always does the same thing in the same way. Furthermore, the term habit is defined as a usual way of behaving, 
something that a person does often in a regular and repeated way. And while some would disagree, and they have every right to, generally speaking, we are all creatures of habit, in one form or another, habit being the key word. This is because each and every one of us is experiencing at least one of two habits on a daily basis, whether, or, whether we are aware of it or not. Of the habits we are aware of, there are a few that occupy more of the limelight than others. Of course, the following are, the following are mentioned in general and not necessarily directed towards anyone. These particular habits are smoking, drinking, and doing drugs, which are also known as addictions. And although the former's may be the most common of the bunch, habits come in all shapes and sizes, from biting nails, to ripping paper, nervousness, to putting on shoes the same way, or wearing special socks, superstitions. In fact, the gamut runs deep when it comes to habits, considering that there are over 7 billion people on the planet, each with at least one or two habits or unique habits to call their own. Be that as it may, we all share one very special habit in common, the habit of thinking. I think, therefore, I think, therefore, I think. Now, considering, now when considering the idea of thought, perhaps used as a verb to think how many consider how many people consider the actual wow okay hold on let's restart guess i'm getting tired almost done at least for this first half of uh, this chapter i think therefore i think therefore i think now when considering the idea of thought or perhaps used as a verb to think how many people consider the act of thinking to be an actual habit? Yet, doesn't the act of thinking, something we do often in a regular and repeated way, scream out as the quintessential definition of the very word? In fact, there are numerous self-help books that list a certain way of thinking as negative, often resulting in a bad habit. This negative way of thinking, sometimes occurring minute by minute, often cripples us from performing our day-to-day -day activities. Essentially, these thoughts eat away at our self-worth, a belief, eventually triggering depression or worse, suicide. And although I discuss depression at a greater length in Volume 2, part of the reason we become depressed and subsequently stay depressed is because of our distorted view of emotions, especially those of joy and sadness. Our quest for happiness. On the whole, joy and sadness are core elements of our emotional spectrum, with fear, anger, and disgust filling out the rest. There are a couple more that I've discovered since then. Unfortunately, at least as like cores. Unfortunately, due to years of indoctrination, mainly from New Age principles, too many people have gotten stuck in the belief that happiness, often mistaken as joy, is an emotion rather than a state or degree within emotions. I'll amend this by saying that happiness may be an emotion, but it's um, saddled with depression, which is part of the third eye, which I will get in a, probably another episode or podcast of something else. 
For instance, when we are in a state of ecstasy, we are actually experiencing joy in its most heightened state. This is joy at its happiest. In contrast, keeping with the same concept, sadness, being a counterpart to joy, is happiest when suicidal. And even though the former may be an uncomfortable concept for some, if not most, to accept, mainly because they believe happiness to resonate with the more positive, or with the positive, and suicide to resonate with the negative, in reality, the classifications of the two polarities are relative to an individual's life experiences. Therefore, what one deems as positive, another could deem as negative. Objectively speaking, the same could be said for our emotional friends, joy and sadness, as well as the others, and how happiness relates to each of them on an individualistic level. And please don't get me wrong. Although I fully understand and empathize with anyone that wishes to prematurely end their time on this planet, suicide should always be a last resort. Be that as it may, it doesn't change the fact that sadness, in its most heightened state, would resonate suicide with being happy. This is because happiness acts more like a release, usually from pain, than anything else. It is this release that sends chemicals to our brain, letting us know that everything is once again okay. Therefore, when one commits suicide, they release themselves from whatever pain they've built upon within their psyche, albeit temporarily, if reincarnation is in fact true. The same can be said about any other emotion, be it anger, fear, disgust, etc., each with their own unique state of happiness, or perhaps better put, a release from pain. Sharing the wealth. Unfortunately, because we've bought because we've bought into the idea that happiness can only be experienced through positive means, we fail to experience happiness via anything else, or anything negative. However, by only feeling the positive side of existence, we tend to bottle up our negative experiences, only to have them leak into our external world, where the bottle becomes too full. Perhaps this is why, as a civilization, we look at anyone's experiencing sadness as being weak and anyone experiencing joy as being strong, or at least normal. This, of course, is yet another belief that most societies accept with open arms. However, when push comes to shove, it, us it is usually those with a well-rounded grasp of sadness that tends to be the strongest. This is because those who always mask their sadness with joy fail, fail to build the necessary enzymes to break down their negative vibes. For the most part, this causes them to crash harder than those suffering from another emotion, depression, a state of feeling sad, causing a mental breakdown. Again, though, because most societies shy away from dealing with sadness in a proper format, i.e. accepting the fact that people don't always need to be joyful to feel happy, we have created a belief that we as individuals and as a society need to chase the dragon of joy in order to feel good. Unfortunately, this type of behavior 
can just uh, can cause just as many issues as depression, at least in the long run. The key, however, as I describe in greater detail in the next chapter, I feel therefore I am, is to create a balance between and within our emotions. By doing so, we allow each to have a functioning release where we no longer need to store our negative energies, but instead allow each to escape our bodies naturally. In addition, I am certain over time, we will discover that bottling up these energies in combination with food, water, environment, etc., is the cause of most diseases on our planet, including the current plague of epidemic ravaging our bodies, cancer, which some studies have found it being linked to the emotion of anger. Of course, because we live in a dualistic universe, the opposite is also, at least potentially, true. Therefore, those that focus their entire time releasing negative energy are usually storing up copious amounts of positive energy and thus are also causing similar damages to their bodies, especially in and around their hearts. If you think about it, part of the body's, um, if you think about it, what part of the body experiences joy the most? Sure, there are times when we feel it through our entire bodies, a sensation of vibrations. However, the default location especially when experiencing joy, is in our hearts. Therefore, when we block the release of joy, or perhaps mask it with a fake emotion, we begin to build walls around our hearts, think coronary heart disease, and while science has the market cornered on the technical aspects of coronary heart disease, the, most, uh, the second leading killer of most men and women in the United States, there isn't much information regarding more holistic methods. Uh, and we are done. So I'll continue this um, in the next episode of Reading Aloud, which um, will begin with the next section called A Healthier Tomorrow. Just want to say thank you very much for listening to this, and I hope you enjoyed what you read. And... Um, yeah, that's basically it. If you liked it, leave a uh, leave a comment somewhere. I don't really ever give out my uh, information. I don't know. I kind of like it that way. Um, but yeah, anyways, thank you for listening, and I hope that you tune in to the next episode. Peace.